Hi, I'm James Chow. I am in Beijing this week and I'll be heading off to Europe soon for some filming and I am just back home, which is why I sound a little bit like I've just sat down in my chair because I have. I've been listening back to a podcast which is coming up in this edition. It's with Ananth Krishnan. He's a journalist who has been in Beijing for some time now. This is where I met him almost a decade ago, just after we both arrived. And it's been a great friendship that's grown from that point on. Well, today we uh, were out for the holiday. I spent some time with his family, his wife, his mother-in-law. And after that, we thought, well, why don't we do a podcast for you? And we had this brilliant slash genius idea to do it in a Starbucks where I honestly believe in the 20 minutes we recorded this, hundreds of people walk through the store and into the shopping mall where there must have been thousands of people creating the din that you're here. You know, I hesitated and we thought about going somewhere else. But Anand assured me that this was going to be a good atmospheric background sound for our conversation. I promise you that this is the last time I'm going to give you a podcast in such a densely crowded, squeezed together environment. It's. It, I think it's a balance, and I think it's um, a question of just getting it right. You would have heard some conversations we've done before in this series. You know, the one with Kamala Durgi was done in Basel. We had tons of people around us. Uh, we had someone talking incessantly across the table from us, but there was absolutely nowhere else to sit at the time. And uh, we tried to give him some looks, but, you know, it's just when you're trying to look for the right quiet space that's exactly when you're going to find someone who's really loud and another one we did I think was two or three episodes ago also in Switzerland with Ming Liu and that was done while we were waiting for a tram and that's because both of us were about to head off to the airport she heading back to London me heading I don't know I think I was heading back to uh where was I going after that I think I was going to I was going to go start for a conference so we didn't have a choice plus I was sick and had a fever and I'd just been filming the night before so it was a question of just getting it done was better than not getting it done at all yet doing it in a crowded room with Carmela and by the tram stop which also wasn't such a great idea with Ming still was justifiable because otherwise he wouldn't have been able to get one done unless we got one over the telephone which is what I try to avoid doing at this stage at least. So back to today, Ananth holiday crowds, it's the first day of the golden week, uh, the national day which lasts for eight days this year, long public holiday you know, I always thought that people go outside of Beijing, but a lot of them do and a lot of them stay because it's such a great time to be in the city. You no know, traffic, you can get onto the subway, you can get a, 
the equivalent of an Uber. We call it Didi Dacha over here. In fact, they bought Uber a couple of months ago without any difficulty. And I think staying here is probably best when a lot of people have decongested the city who may be here but are not going to work. Well, we found out today that they actually go to this one particular shopping mall and to that one Starbucks because you can hear this enormous sound behind. But anyway, that aside, um, production values aside, I think it's, uh, you know, we didn't talk too much about what we we're going to talk about and Anantha saying, oh, you know, what, what are we going to discuss? And we thought perhaps we can go into foreign policy. But, you know, I'm always a believer that one of the great responsibilities of living in China is to share it with everybody who doesn't live in China. And because of the language, because of the gaps in culture between China and everywhere else, especially outside of Asia, but even within Asia, I think it's still such a fascinating story that can add value to somebody's day, to someone's knowledge, to you listening to wherever you happen to be right now, even to people in China. And then to have someone who's not from China, meaning a nuns, but also me in some ways, commentating what we see, what we feel as journalists, as watchers and observers, brings a different set of experiences, of course. And you'll see in this conversation about where we start off with bullet trains and then we take it to the Belt and Road movement that's undergoing here, talking a bit on the economy and then drawing back to India, which is where he's from, finding Mahatma Gandhi in Chaoyang Park, which is one of the most well-known parks here in the Chinese capital, is is really indicative of how wide-ranging a great conversation can be here and how much we all learn every day. The reason why I live here is, first of all, the people. I, I just love being here. And also because I think every day I wake up and I know something exciting is just about to happen. I also know that I'm going to learn and see something new, which I hadn't known the day before. And that, to me, keeps me going. I wanted to share a strand of that, and we wanted to share a strand of that with all of you. So let's go into the coffee shop, ignore all the noise around you, or embrace it. And, um, you know, I just hope that you enjoy this and that you take away something about China that we experience in that same way each and every day. Take care. I'm sitting here with Anand Krishnan, a long-time foreign correspondent, originally from India. He was born in the south of the country in Chennai, a city, a wonderful city. I've had the huge joy of visiting only twice. And he's been in Beijing for how long now, Anand? Did you say eight years, I think? That's right, James. I moved here in uh, 2009. So it's been eight very, very interesting years uh, in Beijing. Of those interesting years, what would you say are the one or two fascinating stories that you've covered as a journalist? Well, James, I think uh, the rise of China has perhaps been the biggest story of our times. It doesn't matter whether you're from India or from DC or from London. It's something that the whole world is following. And I think these eight years have been, uh, it's, it's been really fascinating to watch uh, the story change. I recall I landed here in the middle of the financial crisis 
it, it was a very different China that was still very unsure of its place in the world. It was a China that was still uh, very worried about speaking the language of global leadership, a very cautious China. I think if you fast forward now and you look at, if you're looking uh, at, uh, if, if you're kind of looking at the global landscape and who is taking leadership of the global landscape, it's very difficult. I, I don't think you or I would have expected eight years ago that we'd see China striding the world stage in the manner it is today. I don't know. I think that I was so focused on what I was doing that, that I couldn't even see the changes in the place where I was working, even in my own areas. You know, when you're so focused on something, you need to take a step out. So I love traveling outside of China because then I can see China not only for myself from afar, but also through the eyes and insights of other people who are watching probably one of the most dynamic countries in the world. When you talk about the global financial crisis, of course it was a financial crisis that affected almost everybody apart from the one country that makes up most of the world in terms of numbers, which is of course China. It didn't really affect them in the way that it affected everybody else. What do you think some of the lessons learned there were for them? I think uh, the response was uh, really interesting. Uh, if you recall, I remember just a few months uh, after the financial crisis uh, unfolded and we were beginning to sort of gather the import of this. Uh, the Chinese leadership came out with this uh, massive uh, $584 billion uh, yuan uh, dollar uh, stimulus plan. And I remember watching, I remember reporting at the time of the stimulus spending of China, the way they were, uh, it was the time when they began building this remarkable high-speed rail network. Uh, they started investing in all of these massive infrastructure projects to keep the economy going. Uh, and I think we're beginning to see the fruits of that now. But I think that the way they responded to it, of course, is divided opinion. There are some economists today who are saying that uh, it's, it's left a legacy of ex excess infrastructure, excess spending. But others are saying, well, uh, they came through unscathed. But I think from my own point of view, as you very rightly said, I think when you're living in Beijing, sometimes you lose track of the bigger picture. And so I always make it, made it a point to leave China once or twice a year and go back to India. Uh, and over these past eight years, speaking to people in India on every trip, I think it just really struck me as to how much the China story is becoming so embedded into in every aspect of life in India. Whether it's the phones people in India are using or now, whether it's China coming in and building infrastructure in India. It's, it's just remarkable the way that uh, uh, the story has begun, has begun to influence so many aspects of our lives, even if you're sitting 5,000 kilometers away from Beijing. Even if we go back decades, we knew, of course, that the Chinese were building rail tracks over in on the African continent. They were enhancing mobility. And that's something they've managed to do now in a big way in their own country. You mentioned there the bullet train technology. You must have been on some of those trips yourself. Where have you been on one of those trains? Yeah, I, I have to say, I have to confess I'm a huge fan of the Chinese train system. Uh, and it's, it's something that in India, obviously, we don't have a bullet train network yet. Uh, we've just started work on the first line, and it's, I think it's something that's really transformed uh, the Chinese economy. It's even in ways that it's hard to measure. I mean, the people who, who are from small provinces, whether it's in Hebei or Shandong, you, you get up in the morning, you pick up the train, come to Beijing, get a day's work done. It's just shortened distances, it's brought, in, it's brought markets closer together. And I think it's had a transformative impact on the way uh, people in China live and do business. And I, I have to say, uh, I haven't ever seen one 
chain journey that's been late by even a minute. The not even by a minute. Not even by a minute. You, it's an 8:40 p.m. train. It starts at 8:40. It pulls out of the station, and it's <laughs> and it's a, it's a credit to, it's a credit to how they built this. And it's just it's it's just been in the last eight nine years. I think the first line came up maybe 2008, Beijing and Tianjin. And I've taken I think the longest uh, ride that I took was. I've done the Beijing Shanghai ride a couple of times, which I, I, I never fly to Shanghai now. It's four and a half hours on the train, and, and I'll give you a tip if anyone's listening and takes a bullet train ride: buy a cheap ticket, head to the restaurant car, buy yourself a pot of tea, and you have a lovely office for the next four or five hours. Do you have Wi-Fi now? You don't have Wi-Fi, but if you have your own sort of cellular network that you, I mean, if you have your own connectivity. It's just a lovely place to sit in the restaurant car, or order a cup of tea to keep them happy, and you have four or five hours of just getting work done. It's a very pleasurable experience. My father used to love taking the train or even the bus above what he would say taking a plane because he said you can't see anything on a plane. Whereas when you're in the train, you see literally at eye level the landscape going past you. What do you learn from that? For example, when you go to Shandong or when you go to Shanghai and back to Beijing, what do you learn from that? And and also, I think further afield, what do you think the same technology could do for India for over one billion people? I think uh, I, I don't know. I, I've also found that I've met a lot of interesting people on trains, and you get into conversations with them. The person who's sitting next to you, and that re- that doesn't seem to happen on airplane travel as much, especially if you're traveling economy class, you know, domestic airlines, and and the flights inevitably late by two three hours. Everyone's in a foul mood. No one's happy. But it's completely different from when you board a bullet train and you're getting settled. You're settled in for like a four five hour journey, and people are just. I mean, there's so many people that I've met and had the and had interesting conversations with on, on train rides in China. Um, probably the most. Have you any of them? A couple, including one gentleman who actually it, it turned out to be fortunate that I was doing a story on the bullet train network, and he happened to be actually working for the railway department and just happened to be taking the train to Shanghai. So did you quote so, him and take out your dictaphone? And yeah, and he was very happy to talk because he knew that I was someone. Clearly, you could see it on my face that I was. Uh, very appreciative of the train system that they built, but I, I'd say the most memorable train journey that I've done was not on the bullet train in China, but a slow train in Xinjiang. This was a 30-hour train ride uh, from Urumqi to Kashgar, which is right on the far in west. In one stretch. It's a long train, and it was. Um, this was my first year in China, and my language skills were pretty poor. And I, and I was trying to tell her that I wanted a sleep, a sleeper, but I think she didn't understand. So I got this hard wooden bench for 30 hours. It, it was pretty traumatic, but it was also memorable because I was traveling with local Uyghur students and farmers. And so how many people are in a hard? So the the, the hard bench which is basically a plank of wood. It's basically a plank of wood and you have a t- table right in between two sides of a bench and you have three people on each side of the table. So, so there were six of us crammed in and there were a lot of people who were like migrant workers as well as students carrying huge amounts of luggage. And, and I think it was about halfway through the journey that the train ran out of any food. Uh, so, uh, and I was traveling with a friend of mine from New Zealand and, that, and I think we, 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 I think we somehow survived, but it was still memorable for the kind of friendship that we made. We started playing card games with some of the uh, workers and students, and uh, it was it, it was truly memorable. And the landscapes of Xinjiang, just fantastic, incredible, isn't it? incredible. This was literally on the Silk Road, so we really had the feeling that we were traversing the old Silk Road. From, and we had, when we arrived in Kashgar, I think we had the feeling that what 
the travelers from the 12th century probably had at the end of like a very tough journey uh, across the desert. And imagine what that journey will be like even five years from now. Silk Road, the old Silk Road, the ancient Silk Road versus what's now being called the new Silk Road or the Belt and Road initiative very quickly how would you put it in a couple of sentences because we keep on hearing about it and not necessarily most of those people understand what it is and what it could mean for them so how would you paraphrase what it represents well james i think to put it uh, simply it's just a, it's a massive infrastructure plan uh the china on massages that will link Eurasia, the Eurasian continent, uh, through roads, uh, railways, and, and, and also through a maritime silk road, which is the second part of it. I think it's pretty confusing for outsiders that they call it the one belt and one road, but the road actually refers to what's being built on the oceans, the maritime silk road, uh, which is in what China wants to do at the maritime part uh, through this uh, maritime silk road is to invest in ports. I think uh, you would know traveling in Southeast Asia that especially, for example, if you take Indonesia, a country that's so reliant on the seas, but but a country that's in such such a poor state in terms of its infrastructure and it's in dire need of investment. I think China feels it can step in and fill this void for countries that need better maritime connectivity. And the belt refers to, of course, uh, Silk Road economic belt, which would be Chinese investments in Central Asia and Europe. Uh, I recently traveled to Xi'an, which used to be the, the heart of the old Silk Road. And now, actually, there's a train that, that moves out twice a week, which goes by land from Xi'an all the way to Germany, which is pretty remarkable. I remember the first time I went to Xi'an. It wasn't that long ago, actually. I think it was 2004, towards the end of the year. It was my first full year in China. My parents were visiting, and, of course, it's the home of the terracotta warriors. Some farmers in the area in the late 70s, early 80s, were working the land where they literally struck not gold but these incredible variety of earthenware which represented the people who had died before them and the army that was built around these personalities to accompany them into their next lifetime. Xi'an is a place where I've been back only once to since. If I was to say to someone, and I did say this to a friend recently, he said, where should I go, Shanghai or Xi'an? After I go to Beijing, I said, well, I think Xi'an, you can even do it very comfortably with a one-night stay. I think you can even do it in a day trip, although that's very rushed. What's your favorite journey in China that you've undertaken? What's one journey that you'll tell someone listening for the first time if you're coming to China? I think perhaps you could try this. I would, you know, the most memorable trip that I probably had was in Yunnan. Uh, I think it, and I was traveling on holiday, it wasn't a reporting trip, and I think that's what made it memorable. I think, as you know, as a journalist, when you travel on work, it isn't always enjoyable since you're always thinking about the stories that you need to cover. But I just did two weeks uh, with a friend of mine, we went hiking in Yunnan. And it was probably the most memorable trip that I had. Uh, if you haven't done it before, uh, there is a lovely, uh, if you move to some of the old towns beyond Kunming, uh, Lijiang is one of the towns that's it's, it's a bit touristy now. But if you go beyond the town, uh, there's a lovely three, four, five-day hike that you could do, starting off in Lijiang, 
uh, walk along the Tiger Leaping Gorge uh, and you just spend four or five hours a day walking and at the end of each day there are lovely villages that are by the side of this beautiful gorge. And, and why I like Yunnan as well is coming from India, there's a lot of historical links. Uh, in fact, um, the Silk Road is often associated with Xi'an. But actually, the southern branch of the Silk Road went through Yunnan, and it was it was called the Tea Horse Route, where they would where there would be traders who would bring in horses and take away tea from China, which is why it got its name. So actually, you had people who would travel from Yunnan up towards Nepal, to Tibet, and then onwards to India as well. So incredible! And you, I mean, you were talking about some of the linkages. I heard that there is a is there a Hindu temple somewhere in Beijing? There's a historic one somewhere I saw. That's, that's right. I think not many people are aware of the, of the connections between China and India. And this sort of goes back to uh, the 12th century, the time when the old Silk Road began, which Xi Jinping is now trying to revive. Uh, and in fact, uh, there's a port uh, in Fujian in southeastern China called Chuenzhou. And Chuenzhou was actually, believe it or not, it was the busiest port in the world in the 12th and 13th centuries. For about 200 years, the center of global trade actually uh, was revolved around this port in China called Chuenzhou. And you had people from all over the world. Uh, you had people from Arabia, from India, who all made Chuenzhou their home. And you actually had people from where I'm from, which is South India. Uh, you had Tamil traders uh, who traveled via Southeast Asia uh, and set up a community in Chuenzhou. And so they left that left a legacy of a network of Hindu temples, which are which bear very close resemblance to South Indian temples. Did, did any of them stay behind and marry? Uh, you know, there's not much that we know about this community and, and how, how how long they stayed there. But we rely on Western accounts because they were Italian travelers. Who, tra who ended up in Chuenzhou in the 13th century, and they found that the most prosperous community were these Indian Tamil traders. And, and, and one of the Italian accounts said that you had these Indians in their very strange clothes walking around the streets of Chuenzhou. And the most curious thing was they were the wealthiest people, but they didn't eat meat. And they were vegetarians, so it was something... The wealthiest. Yeah, but they didn't eat meat being... Uh, Why was that? For the face reasons. Yeah, exactly. So, so that was quite interesting, and but none of these temples are still standing. But if you ever visit Chuenzhou, uh, they're just pieces, relics of these temples that have been found. Um, and one of the temples, the only temple that's sort of somewhat preserved, uh, is Chuenzhou's most famous temple. It's called the Kaiyuan Temple. If you ever go down to Fujian, which I would highly recommend for anyone listening, make a trip to Xiamen, which is the, which is one of the nicest cities in China. And they have lovely tea estates up in Wuyi Shan or the Wuyi Mountain as well. So I'd say it's a, besides Yunnan, I'd say Fujian is one of the most memorable places that I visited because I happened to discover this strange connection to my home. To another part of history, which is not just Indian history, but universal history, is of course Mahatma Gandhi, the man who brought about or furthered the concept of non-violent struggle political self-determination. And I think you were telling me on the way over here that there's actually a statue to him in Chaoyang Park, one of the most well-known parks here in Beijing. Have you seen it yet yourself? That's right, James. In fact, it was built by a Chinese artist. Uh, I have to confess that I, I'm not very familiar with the history of the statue, but uh, what's interesting is every October 2nd, uh, which is uh, the anniversary of the birth of Mahatma Gandhi. A uh, little ceremony actually happens in Beijing where the guy, the sculptor who made the statue comes out and a couple of uh, Beijing, local Beijing schools, the school children come out as well. 
Uh, and it's very interesting that you actually have a remembrance of Gandhi uh, in China of all places. And um, it's also interesting that um, he's, he's possibly the most famous Indian personality, I think, uh, besides Rabindranath Tagore. And it's interesting that there's now uh, a Shanghai University that's been set up a, a center for Gandhi's, Gandhian studies. And I, in fact, I was just reading that every October they, they bring about, they bring, they bring together Chinese Indologists who sort of study the relevance of Gandhi's work of nonviolence, of peace. And they actually ask, what can China learn from it? What can the world learn from it? It was very interesting that even in India, if Gandhi is, I'd say he's still remembered in India, of course, but perhaps he's a much more divided, his legacy is much more divided now in India in some ways than it was before. Uh, but in China, it's interesting at the beginning to sort of rediscover his ideas as well. It's actually October 1st here in Beijing, which is National Day. You've got Gandhi's birthday coming up on October 2nd. So I know you'll be going over to look at the statue on his actual birthday. One other thing that someone can do if they're in Beijing for a couple of days. That's absolutely right. I mean, I would spend more than a morning on it. Of course, there's lots to see in Beijing. But I think if, if there's a good day out, if it's not smoggy, if it's a blue sky day, head your head, your head down to Chayang Park, take a look. Uh, and I'd say it's not, a bad, it's not a bad day. That's what I'm going to be doing on October 2nd morning. Uh, to be honest, you don't often get the chance to remember somebody who's so pivotal to Indian history, uh, even when I'm in India. So it's, 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 it's a nice thing to do when I'm here in China, of all places, to sort of spend the morning thinking about somebody who played such an important role in India's freedom struggle. Thanks so much, Nath. Thank you, James. Always a pleasure. And we'll speak to you again soon, I hope. Yes, definitely. And uh, yeah, enjoy the rest of your October holidays, James. It's the best time to be in Beijing. Great. So I booked you for another podcast in advance, just like that. Thanks for speaking there to Nath Krishna. We'll be back, of course, each week with you as we bring you more podcasts talking about the culture, the wellness, the lifestyle, not just only here in China, but wherever I have to be traveling. I'll be going to Europe soon, so I'll be hoping to do a couple more podcasts out from there as well. Take care. Goodbye.